Good evening, everyone. If you would get a Bible out and be opening it up to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy, the third chapter. We're going to be looking right down there at the very end of 2 Timothy chapter 3 in just a moment, noticing a couple of what are probably going to be some familiar verses to uh, many of us, but we're going to read those and that will set the stage for what we want to talk about tonight. What a delight it is to be in this assembly uh, yet again at the close of this First day of the week, this second time, this second opportunity to get to offer our worship unto God, a second opportunity to give and to receive encouragement from one another, and a second opportunity to spend just a few minutes in the Word of God, studying from it, and see what kinds of things we can glean from there that will help us in our lives. Hope that you're eager to do those things this evening. Let's get right to it. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, there Paul writes in verses 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, All Scripture is breathed out by God, and it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. You believe that? You believe what that verse says? That the Bible is breathed out by God? As the old translation says, that it is inspired of God? I would imagine that the majority of people sitting in this room this evening, if not all of the people sitting in this room this evening, do believe that. We accept what 2 Timothy chapter 3 says as being absolutely true and absolutely beyond doubt. That the Bible is God's Word. For most of us, that's a settled issue. But of course, outside of this room, outside of this building, it's not such a settled issue. A recent Gallup poll, actually this was done back in May of this year, That poll found that only 47% of Americans view the Bible as being the inspired Word of God. In fact, 26% of that same number said that they believe that the Bible is merely an ancient book of fables, legends, history, and moral precepts recorded by men. So let's just kind of do the math there. Half of Americans don't believe the Bible is God's Word, And then a full half of that number look at the Bible in the same way that they would, I don't know, the tortoise and the hare or some other of Aesop's fables. Gallup even noted in that same poll that in the 40-year history of them polling on this particular subject, this is the first time that biblical skepticism has actually surpassed biblical belief. More and more people today are losing faith In the Bible. Well, what do we say about all of that? What can we do? Well, we talked this morning about developing an answer for why we have faith in God. Why we believe in the existence of the God that we cannot see. This evening, I want to take that just another step further by talking about why we should have faith in a book that we most certainly did not write. And I want to suggest to you tonight that we're going to do that for the exact same two reasons that we noted this morning. Number one, we want to do that so that we can give an answer whenever we are asked, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe in that old book? Don't you know that most people today, the majority now, do not take the Bible seriously? So why is it that you take it so seriously? Why do you put all of your faith and trust in that book? We want to be ready to give a defense about that. But then number two, 
We want to know the reason for our faith in the Bible. We want to know that reason for ourselves. You know, God is not looking for just a bunch of mindless robots who believe in Him and who profess faith in His Word, but really have no idea as to why they believe. Hebrews 11 verse 1 that we noted this morning says that faith is built on evidence. And we want to gather that evidence. We want to examine that evidence, put it under the microscope, and find out why it is that we believe that the Bible is indeed the Word of God. The beginning of that this evening is really the same place where we started this morning. We want to just start by just dealing with some of those common objections to the Bible being an inspired book. You know, if roughly half of all Americans are now saying that the Bible is, well, it's not actually inspired by God, well, what exactly are the reasons people are saying that? Well, there's lots of reasons why people say that. For example, some people say that they just... They just can't accept the Bible as being a book from God because we're talking about a book that was written thousands of years ago and it was written by, it was really just written by a bunch of dummies. That the Bible was written by nothing more than a bunch of stupid, illiterate, ignorant, Neanderthal type people. In fact, Isn't this kind of the image that many people get in their minds when they imagine people who live during the time of the Bible? Just a bunch of brutes who sit around just just kind of all the time. They don't even know their right from their left. Isn't that what a lot of people think of? That kind of stereotypical sort of thinking? I want you to know that that is actually not true of people who live during the time of the Bible and most certainly of the people who wrote the Bible. People who lived during Bible times were not morons. They were, in fact, very intelligent in a number of different ways. You think, for example, about all of the Greek philosophers and all of the great thinkers who came along during the time of Jesus' day in the first century there. All of the discoveries that were made in medicine and astronomy, many of those things are still practiced even to this day. Those people weren't dummies. Or even just take a look at some of the amazing structures that were built by those people. Think about the Roman Colosseum. Or think about even like the the Parthenon or the Temple of Artemis. Or even go even further back. Think about those pyramids that were built in Egypt. Those pieces of architecture are amazing. They were not designed, they were not constructed by a bunch of dummies. These are people who had intelligence. These are people who had some knowledge and some understanding. And in fact, I believe we see that kind of knowledge and understanding demonstrated when we look at the writers of the Bible. Can I give you just one example of that? Look in Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, I want you to just notice all of the information that Luke, a doctor, I'll remind you, a learned man, look at all the information that he supplies here at the outset of Luke chapter 3. In Luke chapter 3, in verse 1, notice this. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of uh, Iteria and Trachonitis, and Licinius, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. Just stop right there. Let me ask you, what part of that sounds... Like Luke was just a dummy? What part of that sounds like Luke didn't know what he was talking about? 
Well, part of that sounds like this is a guy who did not have some knowledge and understanding. The Bible was not written by dummies. Because people in Bible times were not nearly as backward as people today would like to imagine that they were. Somebody else says, well, you know, it's not so much that the Bible was written by dummies. That's my problem. I'll tell you why I don't believe the Bible. And that's because the Bible, well, the Bible's just filled with all kinds of errors. Just all kinds of errors in the Bible. All kinds of mistakes in the Bible. All kinds of parts that are missing from the Bible. And other parts have just been changed and distorted and, and twisted in different ways. The Bible's just not reliable. The Bible just can't be trusted. Well, what do we say about that? Because that is a significant charge being leveled against the Bible. And Bible critics are very, very quick to voice those kinds of objections. And they even sometimes will supply some quote-unquote proof to back that up. How do we respond to that? Well, those of you that are members here at Lakeside, and if you've been here for the better part of a year at least, you may remember that I preached an entire series last summer titled This Marvelous Book, in which I talked in great detail about the various objections that people level against the reliability of the Bible, the canon of Scripture, and all of those sorts of things. And while I'm not going to get into all of that this evening, I'll just direct your attention to the podcast, and you can find those sermons available there. But I will give you just kind of the Cliff Notes version of that. I will just tell you that in response to that objection there, we need to just be ready to say, yes. Yes, there are parts of the Bible... Parts of those ancient manuscripts, there are parts of the Bible that are in question. Now, before anybody freaks out about that, let me put that into context for you. In the New Testament, there are about 20,000 lines of text. Of those 20,000 lines, about 40 lines are in question. That is roughly 400 words. That's about the equivalent of a page in your Bible. Of those lines that are in question, most of them have to do with spelling or grammatical issues that do not affect the meaning of the text whatsoever. And then somebody may ask, well, Josh, well, that's, that covers most of them, but what about those major lines? And yes, there are some major lines. Of those few major lines that are still in question... None of them are about any serious doctrinal matter that anybody questions or that cannot be resolved by looking at other passages. I tell you that so that you will not be bullied into thinking that the book that you're holding in your lap right now is somehow drastically different from the Bible that people were carrying around during the 2nd and 3rd centuries and once the time the Bible was completed. Yes, there are some issues, some minor issues, And I believe that as more and more manuscripts are discovered, I think some of those issues will end up being resolved. But we need to be clear that the Bible is not filled with errors. That's just false. Of course, that then leads some people to say, well, don't you know, Josh, the Bible, the Bible's just part of this big conspiracy with all kinds of corruption by evil men who met secretly in a back room somewhere and they determined what all books were going to be included in the Bible. And that is actually the entire premise of the book series and the movie series, The Da Vinci Code. If you've ever seen that movie or read any of those books, that's what that's all about. That there were a bunch of creepy guys once upon a time 
who were wearing masks and capes and you know, did all kinds of creepy things. And they're the ones who got together and they assembled the Bible. And even though they could have included more than 80 different Gospels, they chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because those Gospels suppressed women. Yeah, that's what was going on there. That's why they did that. It's a big conspiracy. And you know what? People hear that and that sounds sounds really intriguing. It sounds really compelling. Americans love a good conspiracy theory, don't you know? And so what do we say about that? You've maybe even heard in recent years about some of the discoveries of the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas. I remember there was a big play about that on National Geographic. The books were being sold at the stores there. What about those so-called Gospels? Well, what you need to know about those other so-called Gospels is that they do not pass the test for biblical canon. Mainly because those Gospels were written in the second or the third or in some cases, even later centuries than that, which was well after the time that the Bible had already been written and completed. And let me just say this, even if there were, quote-unquote, lost Gospels that had been hidden away for centuries, do we really believe, let me just ask you, do we really believe that God would give us His Word and then He would allow evil and sinful men to hide it or to destroy it? Do we really believe that? You know, if I wanted to, if I wanted to make a videotape, and I know people will laugh at that, videotape. Who uses videotape anymore? Just make a digital recording. No, we're doing videotape. I grew up during the era of videotape. If I wanted to make a videotape with a very special personal message for my great, great, great grandchild 100 years from now, a grandchild that I will not probably not live long enough to ever meet in person, I want to record a message for that great, great, great grandchild 100 years from now. But I know that between now and that time, somebody's going to come along and they're going to corrupt that tape. Somebody's going to mess the tape up. Somebody's going to maybe wrinkle the tape. Somebody's maybe going to record something else over top of that recording. Then I wouldn't even bother making the tape, would I? What would be the point? Why bother if I can't actually protect the message that's contained on it? Here's the difference between that illustration and talking about God. God did protect His message. Even though He knew He needed to have this thing sent down, not just a hundred years, but thousands of years through time, God protected His message. He providentially preserved His message from generation to generation to generation so that you and I could have that message and we could have it in its entirety even today. The Bible is not corrupted. There is not a conspiracy. There are no lost Gospels. The Bible is complete. Which would then maybe lead someone to say, well, yeah, okay, it's complete. But I tell you what, it is completely filled with contradictions. The Bible's just full of all kinds of contradictions. How in the world can anybody believe and put their faith in a book that says one thing over here, and then you turn a couple of pages over and here's a completely different verse that says something entirely different. It contradicts what the other verse said. Can I maybe just give you a simple example of that kind of contradiction thinking? In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and in verse 8, Paul talks there about a plague that had occurred in Israel that, in the words of Paul, 
caused 23,000 Israelites to die in one day. Then when you go to the Old Testament, you find the actual original recording of that event happening. In Numbers chapter 25 and in verse 9, the Bible says there that 24,000 people died in that plague. Aha! Aha! Contradiction! 23,000 in one verse, 24,000 in another verse. Come on, the Bible can't even get its facts straight. Even on such minor details like this, it can't even get its story straight. You know, I showed that so-called contradiction to a room full of of preteens and young teenagers, and it took them all of about 15 seconds to figure out what was going on there. I asked them, can you explain that contradiction? They did it with ease. What you have there is you have one passage telling us that this many people died in one day, while the other passage is telling us how many people died in total from that plague. You see, just by using... A little bit of common sense. By not just pulling verses out of their context, we're going to kind of study, look at the entire context in which those things are located. We can sort through those kinds of issues. We can sort through anything that might appear to us to be a contradiction. In fact, maybe the very best thing that we could do whenever somebody comes to us and they make that claim, oh, the Bible's got all kinds of contradictions in it. Maybe the very best thing that we can say in that moment is, okay, Tell me one. Go ahead. I'll wait. Tell me a contradiction that you have found in the Bible and we'll sit down and we'll study and we'll see if we can't work that out. Nine times out of ten, they can't. And why? Because they haven't actually investigated it for themselves. They haven't actually read the Bible for themselves. No, they're just regurgitating some nonsense that they heard somebody else say. The Bible does not contradict itself. So then, having addressed some of those common objections to the faith, having faith in Scripture, what then can we offer in a positive sort of way? What then can we offer by way of evidence, and that's what we're interested in today, evidence for belief in the Bible as the inspired Word of God? What can we maybe show a non-believer that might actually help them to think a little bit differently and maybe actually give the Bible a chance? What maybe can we know for ourselves that would provide a reasonable basis for believing in the inspiration of Scripture? Again, it would be really easy for me to go into a very in-depth kind of study about that this evening. Very detailed argumentation about all of that, but I'll... I'll just refer you back to that series I preached last year. You'll get all kinds of thoroughness there. What I'd like to do this evening is I'd like to just keep things simple. Try to keep things simple this morning. I'd like to keep things simple again tonight. In fact, I'd like for you and I'd like for me to be able to give a defense for the Bible as God's Word. I'd like for us to be able to give that defense at any moment. No matter what we're doing. No matter where we are. And so what we're going to need is we're going to need something that we're always going to have in our possession, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, so that we can make that defense and call to remembrance the evidences for the Bible. What I'd like for you to do then this evening is I'd like for you to look no further than your hand. Just stay right there. All of us have a hand, at least one. I think most everybody here has two. But we'll just use one. 
Just think about your hand. Because what your hand is going to do is it is going to remind you of five good reasons to believe in the Bible. Now, I'm going to tell you, there are more than just five reasons to believe in the Bible. But these five will hopefully, hopefully they'll be very easy for you to call to remembrance. As you look at your hand, you'll be able to remember these things. And I believe that these five, these are more than sufficient evidence to accept the Bible as the inspired Word of God. And let's just start, as we're looking at our hand, let's just start right there on the end. Let's start with that little finger. Addie's got a song that she sings about the fingers on the hand and she usually refers to that as the baby finger. We're not going to call that the baby finger. Instead, we're going to refer to that as what many people refer to it as. That's the pinky finger. What about that pinky finger? Well, I'd like to play on that P in pinky and I want that P to remind us of the numerous prophecies and predictions that are fulfilled within the Scriptures. Because all throughout the Old and the New Testaments, the Bible is filled with prophecies and predictions about future events, many of which were made hundreds of years in advance. And what makes it remarkable is that each and every one of those predictions, they all came true. Can I just show you one of my favorites? Look in Isaiah, please, in Isaiah 45. In Isaiah, the 45th chapter, Isaiah is called by God to speak to his people. And Isaiah prophesies to these people about them being in captivity. They're going to be taken into Babylonian captivity. And that is an event that has not even happened yet. And what Isaiah prophesies specifically about here in Isaiah 45 is about who God is going to raise up to deliver them from that captivity. And this is actually an event that's still like 200 years off into the future. Look at what God says through His prophet. In Isaiah 45, look in verse 1. Isaiah 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue the nations before Him, and to loose the belt of kings, to open doors before Him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you though you don't even know me. This is an amazing prophecy. Because I want you to notice just how specific this prophecy is. Notice that the prophet does not say, now one of these days, somebody is going to come along and they're going to deliver you from captivity. That's not what Isaiah says. Isaiah names the actual person, and in fact he names this guy before he's even born. This guy Cyrus hadn't even been born yet. Now the question we ought to then have is, Well, did that come true? That's kind of a bold prophecy. That's a bold prediction there. Anybody can make a bold prediction and say, such and such is going to happen. And many times, it never even comes to fruition. So, did this prediction come true? Yes, it did. 
You read in the book of Ezra, in Ezra chapter 1, and in the first few verses of that book, we read that in the year 539 B.C., just as God's prophet had announced some 200 years prior, that it is indeed Cyrus, who is now the king of Persia, he is the one who delivers Israel out of captivity and he ends up returning them to Jerusalem so that they can rebuild the temple there. You know, one fella, I provided kind of some astronomical odds this morning about some things pertaining to the existence of God. One fella actually calculated what are the odds that this specific prophecy here would actually turn out to be true. That calculation came out to being 1 in 10 to the 15th power. That's 10 with 15 zeros after. And while that might seem to some people, especially to a Bible skeptic, that might seem like, well, that's just a stroke of love. You know, even a broken watch is right a couple of times a day. That is not the only prediction in Scripture that is forecasted correctly. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis, and you just read the Bible book by book, chapter by chapter, and you just start kind of adding things up. All of these predictions and prophecies, predictions and prophecies, they all come true. Of course, maybe the most marvelous of all of those prophecies and predictions are those concerning the Messiah of Jesus the Christ. And how all of those dozens and dozens of messianic prophecies, all of those, and many of those are very, very specific as well, all of those come absolutely true in the person of Jesus. What other book... What other book has that kind of a perfect batting average without even a single strike? What other book can say that about itself except except a book that comes from God? I believe those prophecies, the pinky finger, reminds us of the power of God's Word. Secondly, as we're looking at our hands, let's take a look at that, that next finger on our hand. We often call that the ring finger. And there's a good reason for that, and that's because whenever you get married, that's where you put that wedding ring. You ever thought about why it is that couples do that? That's not just kind of an empty tradition. There's some significance to the idea of wearing the ring. That ring represents the idea that two people are now becoming one. As Jesus said in Matthew 19, they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so what that ring is going to remind us of on the ring finger is it's going to remind us of the remarkable unity of the Bible. This is two people are united together in marriage. The ring finger represents that. We're also going to think about the unity of the Bible. You just stop and consider how amazing the Bible is in its composition. The Bible contains 66 books written by 40 different authors. And those 40 authors could not have been more different. You had kings. You had shepherds. You had rabbis. You had fishermen. You had IRS agents. You had doctors. You had people of every kind who took a hand in writing the Bible. And those people who wrote the Bible wrote that on three different continents. Not just three different towns, but three different continents. In three different languages. Most of us do well just to speak one language. And they did that over the course of, not, you know, a short period of time. They did that over the course of 1,500 years. Now what's remarkable about all of that is that when you put all of those books together, 
You don't get 66 different stories all talking about 66 different things. No, what you get is you get one story that has one central theme. The Bible is all about God's plan to redeem man from sin. Everything in the Bible either points forward to the cross or it actually ends up looking back to the things that happened after the cross. Everything centers around Jesus and Him crucified being the Savior of all mankind. Let me ask you, how is that possible? How can that possibly be? You know, if we all, if we, if we got 40 people tonight who decided we were going to go home this evening and over the course of the next few nights we're all going to, we're all going to sit down and we're all going to write a, a, a book, whatever, you know, may not be like an entire book, but a few pages of a story and then we're going to come back together on Wednesday night and we're going to put all that together. What is the chances that we're going to have one coherent story? That just ain't happening. The odds of that happening are practically zero. How then is it possible that this ginormous book, not written over the course of three or four nights, but written over the span of 1,500 years, with all of those kinds of odds stacked against it, how is it possible that it can all come together to be this remarkably united book? Well, Peter tells us how that's possible. Look in 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1. In 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm reading here in verses 20 and 21. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 20, here is how the Bible is able to all come together and it all just fits. 2 Peter 1 verse 20, Peter says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's, some man's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The reason the Bible has such extraordinary unity is because it wasn't written from the minds of mere human beings. It was written from the mind of God. This book comes from God's mouth. And its unity serves as powerful evidence of that very fact. Thirdly, We're taking a look on our hand and we're making our progression this way. Right there in the middle of our hand is the biggest of all of our fingers. I'm going to call it just the big finger. And we want to look at our big finger and we want that big finger to remind us that the Bible, the Bible tackles the big issues of life like no other book can and like no other book will. You know the big issues that I'm talking about here? I don't just mean issues of, you know, marriage, children. Certainly we have questions about those things. We're always looking for guidance and direction in those departments. I'm thinking even bigger than that. The big issues and the big questions that we have like, what's the meaning of life? Where did we come from? Why are we here? Where is it that we are going What is right? What is wrong? We ask those kinds of questions, don't we? I'm convinced that every human being at some point in their life entertains those questions. Even people who aren't religious entertain those very kinds of questions. I think about in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and in verse 11. Solomon says there in Ecclesiastes 3 and in verse 11, 
He says there that God has put eternity in their hearts. And I think that says something about how we just are insatiably curious. We crave to know what what this is all about. And is there more to this? And what do I need to be thinking about and, and doing in my life to be prepared for whatever comes next? And it is not a coincidence that the very same author of this book of Ecclesiastes really tries to answer that in a small, concise nutshell. Would you fast forward to the end of the book in Ecclesiastes 12? Look in verses 13 and 14. Because there Solomon says this. Here's kind of just the summary of all of those big questions of life. The end of the matter. David Hatfield can quote this passage from memory. The end of the matter. After all has been heard, fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, that, that covers a lot of ground, doesn't it? In fact, that's the reason David likes to quote it so often, because it does, it covers pretty much everything. But you know what? There is even so much more than just that little nutshell summary. In all the remaining pages of this marvelous book, the Bible breaks down all kinds of specific things, addresses all of those big issues of life and all of the sub-issues that come along with it. And while I'm certainly not trying to disparage the value of books that are written by best-selling authors and and other published works that people write to to try and help people, self-help books and those sorts of things. I'm here to tell you, you will not find another book on planet Earth that answers all of life's biggest questions as thoroughly and completely and as correctly as the Bible does. And that is why Christians have devoted their very lives to studying this book, to examining this book, trying to mine out all of the great riches that are found in it because we want to know more. The Bible, tackling the big issues of life, I think that's a powerful reason to believe in the inspiration of Scripture. Fourthly then, what about about that finger? That is, that's the pointer finger. Usually when I'm preaching, I do lots of that kind of stuff. I'm pointing and we're pointing all kinds of things. Well, what do we want to do with the pointer finger? Well, with our pointer finger, we want to use that to remind us of how the Bible, the Bible can point to history to end up kind of supporting the veracity of what the scriptures are saying. History vouches for and verifies the information that is contained within the Bible. You know, while the Bible is primarily a spiritual book, the Bible also does contain a plethora of factual information about human history. And if this is indeed a book from God, then that history that's in there, it better be accurate. It better be correct, oughtn't it? You remember that passage we read a moment ago in Luke chapter 3? Would you go back and look at that again? In Luke chapter 3... Let me see if I can take another crack at getting all these names right. I practiced on them all afternoon. See if I can pronounce these guys' names right. I think I messed up. Let's try it again. Luke 3, look in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, 
And Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, there is a lot of information just in those two little verses. And so you might be wondering, as you're looking at all of that, you might be wondering, does that check out? I mean, is, is all of that correct? All kinds of information there about who's governing here and who's governing there. Does it match up with the timelines and all of that sort of stuff? Does that stuff check out historically? And the answer is, yes it does. Every single bit of it checks out. You can refer to any secular book of history. You can refer to any encyclopedia. You can get on the internet and go to Wikipedia. And what you will find is that those dates, those names, and those titles, they are all correct. And that's just one little example. Because all of the information in the Bible, all of it checks out. All of those weird sounding names. All of the geography that's contained in there. All of the history that's contained in there. It all stands up to the test of historical accuracy and scrutiny. Now I want to say, that alone, that alone does not make the Bible an inspired book. But when you couple it with these other ideas that we've looked at, It is yet another strong piece of evidence in building the case for the Bible's inspiration. All of which then leads to that last finger on the hand. Let's talk for a second about the thumb. If you lived during the time of the first couple of centuries, and particularly if you lived in the Roman Empire, the thumb, the thumb was a pretty important finger. Because the thumb played a major role in the gladiators' arena in those early centuries. If two gladiators, if they were battling and dueling it out there in the Colosseum, and one of them was down for the count, they'd been struck down, then the emperor, he would then either give a thumbs up, which meant you lived, or a thumbs down, which means you die. The thumbs up is what you wanted. Because the thumbs up means you get to live another day. And when we look at our thumb, that's what we want to say about the Bible. That the Bible does continue to live another day. Here we are nearly 2,000 years later since the Bible has been completely assembled and the Bible is still alive. It is still ticking. It takes a licking, but it keeps on ticking. Think about the Bible, all of the attacks that the devil has leveled against the Word of God. It has been attacked by kings, by popes, by scholars, by learned men. It has been banned. It has been burned. It has been mocked. It has been tossed in the trash. Yet the Bible continues to be the most translated, the most read, and the most sold book of all time. If the Bible was merely just a book written by men, then it would have died a long time ago. But the Bible is not just another book written by men. The Bible is a book from God that has never been destroyed. Look in 1 Peter 1. In 1 Peter 1, covered this with the kids in the Bible drill this evening. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verses 24 and 25. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and in verse 24. Peter says this, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The Bible has never been defeated. And what Peter says is that the Bible will never 
be defeated. I am reminded of this great poem. I think I've shared it once before. It is the poem about the anvil. The anvil of God's Word. The poem goes like this. Last eve I passed beside a blacksmith's door, and I heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn by beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, to wear and batter all these hammers so? Just one, said he. And then with twinkling eye, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so, thought I, the anvil of God's Word. For ages, skeptic blows have beat upon. Yet though the noise of filling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, and the hammers, they're all gone. You think about all of the hammers that have been leveled against the Word of God through the years. Where are they now? They're either gone, or the hammers that are currently beating on that Word, one day they will be gone. And yet the anvil, the anvil still remains. And what all of this shows us is that we do not believe the Bible just because we want to, or just because our mom and dad tell us that that's what we have to do. We don't believe the Bible just because all of our friends do. We believe the Bible because it is reasonable. And because I believe it is the only logical conclusion whenever we examine the evidence. What these things show us tonight is that what we have is we literally, we have a handful. We have a handful of good, no, great reasons to have faith in the Bible as the Word of God. And so the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe the Word that God has left for us. And I want you to understand, when I ask, do you believe it? That means more than just mentally, yeah, I accept it, that it is a book from God. When I ask, do you believe? Do you have faith in the Word of God? What I'm asking is, I'm asking, do you obey it? Do you believe it enough to act upon it in obedience? The Bible says so much about the idea of salvation, because as I said a moment ago, that's the story of the Bible. It's about God's plan to save sinful men and sinful women. The Bible will teach you how to be saved. And that all starts by believing and then confessing our faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. That faith then works within us even more to lead us to repent, to turn away from sin, and then to be baptized in water for the remission of those sins. That's putting to death the old man of sin, putting on a new life, putting on the new man, a Christian, child of God. And then the Bible exhorts us to continue to grow, to be faithful to the Lord, and to continue to serve Him all the days of our life. That, that is what we need to do to be saved. Because that's what the Bible teaches. I don't know where you are tonight. We may, in fact, have some people in this room who are a little bit skeptical about the Bible. Maybe you're even skeptical about what we talked about this morning, about, about the existence of God. hope we've offered some things today that will give you pause. You'll think about that. But if you do have faith, if you do know who God is and you know that his, this is His Word and you're just not doing anything about it, then we are imploring you tonight to get off the dime. We're going to sing a song to encourage you to be obedient to God's Word, to become a Christian, to be a more faithful Christian, whatever your need might be. We stand ready to assist you right now. Why don't you do something about it while we stand and while we sing?